This is Annie Gamers Podcast number 33, recorded on Saturday, August 21st, 2010, from somewhere in dark space. Welcome to the Annie Gamers Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Evan Minto, also known as Vampfo, and my co-host is none other than Mitchie Di- Mitchell. None other than Mitchell Dyer, also known as Mitchie D. What's up? Yo. And uh, for this episode, we've got a very special guest, someone who you've probably heard us mention a couple times in previous episodes, uh, Daryl Surratt. Hey, great to be here, finally. And Daryl runs a podcast, writes for a magazine. Want to tell people about that real quick? Sure. I'm an anime podcaster, not really a video game person necessarily, but uh, hey, what are you going to do? Um, the name of my podcast is the Anime World Order Podcast uh, at AnimeWorldOrder.com. I'm also a writer for Otaku USA Magazine for the last uh, three years and change, doing the uh, anime reviews and features there, so check it out. All right, so for uh, this podcast episode, we're going to be talking about Mass Effect as the series. It's a video game series on the PC and the Xbox 360. Uh, Currently, what is out in the series is Mass Effect and Mass Effect 2, and uh, Mass Effect 3 is coming up at some point in the future. Yeah, it's a planned trilogy. Right. So we are going to be talking about the the series, you know, where it is so far, what we've thought of uh, of the two games so far, what we're expecting for the third game, all that kind of stuff. It will be it'll have a lot of spoilers. I will tell you that. So uh, if you haven't played them and you're planning on playing them and you don't want to know all the the plot twists and such things, you should probably just not listen to this episode at all because we're not going to stop and tell you every time there's going to be a spoiler. I do recommend that you play these games. I do know that I had been meaning to play through Mass Effect and Mass Effect 2 subsequently for a long time, such that whenever any podcast I listened to would say the words Mass Effect for the last three years, I would have to stop listening because I didn't want to get spoiled. <laughs> and let me tell you, it was worth it. Yeah, they're, they're I mean, I, I think they're pretty good games. Not everybody likes the first one, but the second one is, is pretty uh, generally critically acclaimed. I would say that most people like the first one, but consider the second one better, but that doesn't make the first one bad. Think of it this way. It's generally universally agreed that The Empire Strikes Back is better than Star Wars. That doesn't mean you just watch The Empire Strikes Back and (laughs) skip Star Wars. Right. Uh, So with that, let's get into talking uh, specifically about Mass Effect 1. Uh, It came out November 20th, 2007, just for, for reference here. So... What what are your opinions? I'll start with uh, with Daryl here. What, what did you overall think of the first game on its own? I thought that it did a phenomenal job of world building, of establishing a setting, of establishing characters and you know a scenario that games traditionally don't do as good a job or as thorough a job of doing as this first game. This is incredibly dense. Mass Effect One. I'm talking about. I know I was just fascinated by the immense levels of data and detail they put into everything. Um, There's a codex of journal entries that, you know, give like a breakdown of like each of the races and how the technology works and each and every planet and star system. And I was... Right, but by the way, it's a kind of, 
it's a kind of Star Wars esque science fiction story, which we didn't uh, we didn't mention. So it's it's very very kind of Star Wars inspired, right. and you're going around different planets, you're saving the galaxy, that kind of thing. It's set in a a setting that is not the traditional RPG setting such that this level of detail is necessary. Whereas in other games, if it's like a fantasy genre sort of thing, you can kind of understand, okay, there's kingdoms and knights and elves and dwarves and wizards and dragons. This is um, nothing like that. There is the way the system works is that humanity has just discovered this new technology that permits um, faster than light travel throughout the galaxy and, you know, there have been other races, several others, as a matter of fact, that have had access to that technology for a long, long time. Therefore, humanity is just, uh, you know, they're the new race on, like, the galactic scale. And that's kind of where we start. Um, humans don't really have that big of a say in the way intergalactic affairs are conducted, which are all pretty much handled by a council of representatives sort of like, you know, our United Nations, except with more authority, such that each race has a delegate. And at the start of the first Mass Effect, um, a big key issue is that humanity doesn't have a seat on this console. They're too young. It's only been 30 years. Some races take, you know, centuries to get their seat on the console. And um, all of this is explained in uh, great detail, um, not just through text resources, which are several, but also through dialogue and quests and so on and so forth, journal entries, computer data readouts. There's a lot of different ways that they impart information to the gamer, and each one of them, it doesn't feel like it's just an info dump of tedium. And if you don't want to read things, you don't have to. I know a lot of people probably just flew around and saved the day and got pretty much the entire story, but if you want it, it's there. And that's what I thought that the original Mass Effect uh, blows away a ton of other games as far as just making this seem like a living world. Yeah, it's it's interesting how very optional it is. Like you can you get into a conversation, and a lot of times on your little conversation wheel there will be investigate, and you could just ignore the investigate and move on with the conversation, or you could go in and ask every single question about what someone's job is or how you know it ties into galactic politics, and then. If you're even more interested, you can go in and read all those codex entries. So, like, I, I didn't read a ton of them, but what I did read was very interesting. They have so much, like, history and, and all these political and kind of and racial tensions. I really love the racial tensions that are running throughout it. So you'll, you'll meet an alien, and they will hate humans, and they'll hate a whole bunch of other alien races for all these different reasons. And you kind of, it for me, it made me think about, you know, like, we we have all this racism among different skin colors, but when we get out into the galaxy, if we do, and we meet other aliens, it'll be like, you know, humans got to stick together. And, and I would assume a lot of those internal racial tensions would kind of smooth out as we start to hate, like, things that look like crabs and stuff like that. It's also not just a novelty, too. Like, they actually do something with it. It's not just, oh, well, right. some races hate others. It's, well, there was a war between the Turians and the humans, mm. so pretty much all Turians hate all humans. They're still bitter about it, even though it was however long ago, and all the humans are desperately trying to rebuild their their place in this within this galactic council, trying to earn their place there and be friendly with everyone else. Yeah, and, and, and there are some really interesting, like, like stuff that's just more than one race hates another, like with the, uh, the Turians and the Salarians and the Krogan, where... Like the Solarians gave the 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 Solarians are these like kind of more scientific ones, and the Krogans are very 
barbaric. As a racist uh, myself, you can say the Salarians <laughs> are space Asian men, <laughs> and the Krogans are space black people. That's well, the most racist way to put it. We will leave Daryl to say that, yes. Yeah, yeah, look, listen. <laughs> I'm just trying to say that, you know, the way that they lay this out, everyone is like, right. um, you know, in this weird sort of, you know, apply a human trait, yeah. which is how all science fiction works. You yeah, know, like Turians are essentially conservative humans. Right, because they're very militaristic. They're very uh, rigid in some levels of thinking, but also very... Um, you know, lenient towards other things. Like if you were to read the codex things, there was nothing about like um, rules in the Turian military that says you can't be like on drugs or anything, but if it affects your job, then you're in trouble. <laughs> but that's like the kind of thing, like the relationship between these three groups to go back to what you were saying was hmm. that, you know, in the past there was this huge alien uprising of like this insect, like swarm um, called the Rachni, and so the other races could not uh, stop this race from potentially taking over the galaxy, so they went to a more primitive race called the Krogan, which were uh, very uh, physically tough, sort of lizard-like creatures that uh, reproduced at an incredibly high rate and had a very high aptitude for just uh, fighting and warfare, and they gave them technology, uh, like spacefaring travel and, you know, the guns and all that, and said, go out and, and quell this Rachni invading force. And they did, but then it, it just got out of hand. Like, the, now the Krogan were the big threat. And so the Salarians came up with a, a sort of virus, a sort of biological weapon, which in the game is referred to as a genophage, which effectively sterilizes um, the entire Krogan race such that only one out of every thousand or so births uh, actually survives or comes to term. And the Turians, you know, then deployed this terrible weapon on them. So now the Krogan is a race that's slowly going extinct. And of course, they harbor severe um, hatred towards the Turians, especially for this. And it's interesting because it's not as simple and clear cut as like, okay, these guys bad, these guys good. Except for the Batarians. Those guys are all terrorists. Yeah, they're just dicks. Right. It's true. Space <laughs> Arabs. That's the way it is. You know, as seen uh, by America. They, they all they do is commit acts of terrorism and slavery. Right. And mercenary acts and things like that. Yeah, of all the races, you know, every other race in Mass Effect has like their good ones well, the and Vorcha. their bad ones. Nobody likes the Vorcha. The the Vorcha are basically They're just dirty. They're just they're right. just gross. <laughs> Right, there aren't any like good Vorcha either because they're pretty much not very intelligent and they look really sick and they're, again, just total villain races. But other than that, you know, everyone's kind of okay depicted, except for the Batarians. I mean, I'm wondering if in Mass <laughs> Effect 3 they'll be like, you know, the good Batarian or not. You get one opportunity in Mass Effect to ever do anything nice for a Batarian and it's because he's dying. You can give him medicine. Oh, yeah. And that's it. Every other time it's like, well, is it Batarian? Better shoot him in the face with a laser. Uh, yeah, but I, I think the, the genophage tie, uh, can bring us into a discussion of like the morality stuff. So there's like a really gray morality uh, area over the, the genophage where it's like, if you got rid of it, the Krogan could potentially kill everybody. But if you keep it, you're, you know, you're, you're kind of... Uh, you're keeping this this essentially sterility plague on an entire race that's making them go extinct. So there are it's a lot also of questions keeping like them that. from like developing their civilization. Right. 
Right. So there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of these these kind of morally gray choices, and the game is all about choices. There will be like some usually two, but sometimes more choices of you know if you're gonna take like the neutral option, or you're gonna be good, or you're gonna be bad. But what's interesting is you can't be pure good. Uh, well, you can be kind of pure good, I guess, but like or pure evil. It's not like the choice in some other games where it's like help the old lady across the road or shoot the old lady. It's like there's kind of this baseline of what Shepard is, and you're just nudging him or her uh, one way or the other. So Shepard's still going to save the galaxy. Shepard's, uh, I'll refer to Shepard as a he in this case. Uh, Shepard's your main character, but it can be a, a woman also. Um, so, like, Shepard's not going to side with the bad guys and, you know, kill the human race or something like that. But maybe, you know, Shepard is more likely or less likely to sacrifice innocent lives or to save someone who doesn't, who, you know, is kind of out of the way. And so you're, you're nudging Shepard along these, these lines to, and it, it allows you to make a kind of deeper character that's not just pure one thing or the other because you can choose uh, Paragon, which is good, or Renegade, which is uh, bad. You can choose Paragon or Renegade at different times and kind of create this this gray character that's a bit more realistic. Right, I think this is a real advancement for Bioware because video game morality was always incredibly black and white such that if you ever tried to choose the more evil route, it would be so inconvenient and never ever worth your time that you would right. always... It was like you had to murder a town just for fun or something. It's right, like, what? And, and it's like, well, this is unjustified and also it would make the game much, much harder for you to beat because now you'd just be randomly attacked by, you know, in the case of Bioware's earlier games like Baldur's Gate, you know, the Flaming Fist would just teleport in and, you know, you couldn't do anything about it and people would refuse to sell you things and so on and so forth. In Mass Effect, you're always a hero, whether you're like more Jack Bauer style hero rather than, you know, the Boy Scout is up to you, but you're still a hero and maybe... I think that's kind of the way video games need to go because a lot of times in games, your morality choice is crap or you force yourself to choose the altruistic option, but you really have uh, greed in mind. Let me give you an example from uh, any variety of other RPGs you can think of. Someone asks you to do something and you get some choices. Sure, I'll do it or no, I'm not going to do it or I'll do it if you pay me. You go and you do the quest and they say, oh, thanks for bringing back whatever, whatever. You have three choices. Oh, I'll just give it to you. It's its own reward. You know, I'll pay you for it. See, I'll kill you. Most people choose the, oh, I'll just give it to you as its own reward because they know if they do that, they'll actually get a bigger reward than if they picked any of the other choices. It's a BS hmm. morality. Bioshock, right. perfect example. Harvest the little sister or rescue them. Oh, if you harvest them, you get more. But if you rescue them, you get less. But you don't really. There's really only one choice to make in Bioshock. In Mass Effect, you've actually got real choices to make because your choices are ultimately for good, no matter what. It's just how you, what kind of good guy are you? And so I usually, this was my personal play style, would usually pick the more renegade option unless it just felt completely unjustified, which in mm, a lot of this right. game feels completely unjustified. It's like, why would I be a jerk in this situation to like a person who's either on my team or a person yeah. who's like, you know, in need of saving? And in fact, some of the renegade options actually seem like they're just straight up evil options, but you're yeah. still a hero. 
Right, there, there's one, I think, in Mass Effect... Or no, it's in Mass Effect 1, where I think you do, like, a essentially a loyalty mission for Garrus. Uh, and you have an option to say, after he, like, shoots somebody, you can say, like, that's how it's meant to be. A bullet in the head solves everything, or something. And it was like, that's, that doesn't sound like heroic Commander Shepard. It's weird, too, because it's... If you, if you start mixing up your decisions, it the character starts to become really unbelievable. Because you'll have moments yeah. where he's just, like, completely altruistic, com- like, throwing him and his team in, in harm's way just to save, like, a cat or something. And you have to fight through this entire huge building, through all these guys. And you'll have this great reception. Everybody loves you. And then you can do a mission later where you're just a complete asshole for no real reason. And it just completely breaks right. the character for me. So if you're not really actually role-playing, it's a, it's a different mm. kind of weird experience. But role playing in it is actually really fun because you get these, you get like a backstory, and so you can be like, you know, your entire team was killed on this mission or something, and so you can have like this military history, this psychological profile, and everything, and it, uh, and if you kind of work with that and, and create an idea of what Shepard is, you can act, like there's actually a lot of room to, to be not pure Paragon or pure Renegade. So like my first playthrough was like, I was Renegade, so I'd like do anything to get the job done, but my entire team was killed, you know, on on some mission previously. So the only times I would be Paragon was when it came to saving my team because, like, I didn't want, you know, my character wouldn't have wanted that to happen. Again. I actually played it a very, very similar way to that. I was usually a, a renegade, except when it came to my team. Um, I would usually be, you know, more Paragon-like dialogue choices. And this game, to its credit, it's... um it's pretty clear what choices are what because the way that Mm. dialogue operates is that you've got a wheel of choices such that the topmost choice is usually the paragon choice the bottom most is usually the renegade choice and the middle one is the middle of the road choice that doesn't really affect either the benefit that the gamer has from taking the more extreme routes is that you are permitted to put points into you know um charm as it were, or intimidate, which opens up additional dialogue choices that you wouldn't otherwise have. And they usually the get past certain like dialogue obstacles. So if somebody's kind of stonewalling you, you can charm or intimidate them and, and you know get them to tell you something or let you in somewhere, things like that. Right. And in those cases, I usually found that the um, special option that's unlocked with your stat for that, and you can always tell because it's a, a blue highlighted dialogue choice for a, a paragon or charm and a red highlighted for renegade, I would always pick those choices if they were available because the end result there was no would reason usually not be to. pretty close. There was always a exactly. reason to do it because if you didn't, you would just have these normal conversations. But these would deviate from the path a little bit and give you new options or a different kind of reaction that always was cooler or more beneficial or led to something else. Right. So it was always in my interest to, to do that. I mean, when I first started the game, like right at the beginning of the game, they give you some choices where they're grayed out. And I think to myself, whoa, wait a second, what's going on here? Why would they give me these choices if they're already grayed out? It's impossible for me to take them, except it dawns on me that this is a game where you are allowed to have New Game Plus, such that if you beat the game with your maxed out stats and your crazy inventory and all that, you can now go back and replay Mass Effect 1 and pick the choices that you weren't able to pick or you chose not to pick the first time. So there's a lot of replay value to this game because in addition to being um, Paragon or Renegade, you can also choose your class, 
much like and how, your gender, which it, changes things also. Yeah, it actually changes things um pretty um subtly, but it's some things that you can only do as either a guy or as a girl. Uh, a lot of people I know actually prefer the female shepherd route um, for two reasons. One, it's generally agreed that the voice actor they've got, Jennifer Hale, she's in everything, is a better pick than the male shepherd voice actor. But uh, also, some of her line deliveries are just, you know, more convincing, especially the renegade option <laughs> for her is usually <laughs> um, probably the, the most hilarious stuff. And yeah, it does open up avenues of the game that you uh, otherwise wouldn't uh, get to. In the case of Mass Effect 1, the most um, known one of these would probably be the uh, the Scourge of Bioware's RPG um, NPC interactions, their uh, romances. Mm. Who has played uh, previous Bioware games where this system has been in place? I don't remember playing one. Mitch yeah, I've played has. Knights of the Old Republic. Okay, Knights of the Old Republic is uh, the main one people would know because it was released on the consoles. They also did this in Baldur's Gate 2 as well. But yeah, Knights of the Old Republic was the direct predecessor to Mass Effect and um, has a lot of similarities as far as this stuff goes because it's just uh, the difference is that it's uh, because it's Star Wars, it's, it's allowed to be like that black, white, light, or dark morality, and it makes sense in that world. But yeah, um, romances in Bioware games are terrible, pretty much. Yeah, they're, because, they're, yeah, I'm, uh, I'll, I'll back you up. That's, they're pretty fucking terrible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, they are all based on this idea like, okay, you recruit an NPC into your party, and as you level up, you, you can talk to the NPC and eventually get them to reveal their life story as a result of dialogue options. And then at some point, you usually get like a choice where you can just say, you know what? I'm attracted to you. And then right. they'll be like, <laughs> yes, I also love you. How about that? And Right, and, and it's you, you get to that simply by just talking to them about, like, nothing, and there's no, there's no lead into it. You're just like, bam. Now, I am so... There's a limit to how much I'm willing to condone as far as video game stuff and them at least trying for something. Maybe it's a case of people under duress, that, okay, these guys are out there right. risking their lives, dying. They can die at any minute. So, all right, maybe this kind of romantic exchange is viable. Um, that's usually how I justify it in my mind. In reality, it's probably just because the guys they have at, you know, video game companies and such <laughs> are kind of crappy writers. And my evidence for this is there is some ancillary Mass Effect merchandise. There are books about Mass Effect that take place in the world that are written by the exact same people who wrote the game. These books are terrible. Like, uh, <laughs> Drew Carpassian, or whatever his name is, Mac Walters, um, th these are not, like, good books. Like, it, they don't read well. No, they're cool stories, so, but they uh, read, like, teen fiction. Yes, that's exactly the, <laughs> the issue here. Um, and so I think their accomplishments, like, what their talents are is that they can write, like, these codex entries, these sort of, like, encyclopedia things, like, the density of this planet is so-and-so, and it's got, like, this thing, and yeah. there's a weird crater here because of whatever, whatever war. It's like, oh, yes, yeah, fascinating. But once it starts getting into, like, descriptive text and uh, that sort of thing, that's where it falls apart. So I'd, I'd really be curious to see, like, what the creative meetings for these look like. Like, who's got the ideas and who's just got, like, stupid things because... 
I guess it's a different skill set to be able to write a good video game, which Mass Effect is, and to write a good book, which Mass Effect is not. Just going back to the romance mm. thing real quick. Uh, I played through the game f- like five times as a male shepherd. I never ever play as the woman, and I don't know why, but whatever. Anyway. It's because you're a chauvinist male exactly, patriarchal yes, pig. hate the women. <laughs> so uh, when the whole like sex box thing exploded on Fox, and it was like, oh, you mm. can just have random space orgasms. And it was the justification that everybody used was, oh, well, you can develop relationships. That's kind of true, and that's kind of not true. Like, looking back at it, there is one relationship you can build, and one you kind of bullshit your way through. Because if you're romancing, uh, what the fuck is her name? Ashley. Ashley, yeah. yeah. Your choices are generally kind of dire, whether you're a man or a woman. Okay, because when you're talking uh, about... Ashley, in this case, is your uh, potential human love interest and her answer she's a member of your party or sorry not her answers your answers to her things it's like everything she has to say revolves around like how bad you should feel for her because oh i've had such a hard life and i'm a racist my sister got raped (laughs) and every time she says something like like that your answer is always either suck it up williams get back to work or you know i'm pretty tough and i can make you feel better because i'm i'm a i'm a man and and then she just kind of buys into it, and then sexy times. On the other hand, you have Liara's relationship, which isn't romantic uh, at all. Liara Tassani is an alien who is supposed to be like a couple hundred years old or a hundred years old. Their race lives for like millennia. Um, she's supposed to be an archaeologist, and she effectively is, you know, gameplay wise, is useful because she's equivalent of a magic user. In another RPG. However, when it comes to this romance, she has autism. (laughs) (laughs) Liara Tassani, you're you're a century year old and you're like, kiss? What is kiss, human? Yeah, she's she's very confused about everything. I'm very awkward in social situations. Uh, of course, we say tell, she uh, because um, yeah. you know, technically um, the Asari, which is her race, don't have a gender. They're, um, they're, but they all look like young women. Yeah, they all look like beautiful women. And um, over time, it's suggested that that might actually be a psychic manipulation. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, they're of one gender. So whether you play as a man or as a woman, uh, Liara in this game is a potential love interest option. That ridiculousness aside, I think her relationship is the more convincing of the few, because she is not necessarily romantically interested. She just wants to be like, hey, let's do this sorry sex thing. It would be awesome, and you're like, it would be awesome. Right, because it's just like, sorry, don't necessarily do it for like romantic reasons. They'll do it to like improve the genetic uh, variety of their race and things like that by like mating with, right. mating outside the race. So it makes a little bit more sense that she, like, that she would do it logically because that's really the only I way Bioware can get around it by making it completely logical and not romantic because right. they're bad at writing it romantically. I'm, I haven't been racist enough for the last 10 minutes, so now that we're talking about the Asari, Go right ahead. if the Salarians are space Asian men, the Asari are space Asian women, they'll <laughs> screw anyone but their own kind. Bada boom! run around slutting it up for the first hundred years of their life and then they decide up better settle down and you know hook up with uh, anyone other than another asari because uh bad things happen i don't know maybe (laughs) but yeah i mean the asari in this game are pretty much where all like the controversial sluttiness comes from because i guess as part of their uh background 
they're uh, very open about sexuality because they can right. mate with any race um, and so on and so forth. So uh, all the strippers you see are sorry. Yeah. Um, the only and they, time they, talk, can... they talk about being a stripper as if it's a part of their life cycle. It's like, well, you can only spend so many years being a stripper before you have to settle down. <laughs> right, being a stripper like, or a mercenary. It's like, yeah. those are your choices as a kid. It's like You oh, didn't yeah, retire as a receptionist or a justicar. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of like the Asari are just weird as hell. And it's like, listen, we have uh, immense latent biotic powers. Uh, this is what it goes with, the territory, you know? So we're out there, you know, pole dancing for <laughs> a century. I, I want to move on to other stuff, but real quick, just to, to underscore how uh, how kind of confusing these romances are. I got into a romance with Liara in the first game when I was playing Renegade, and I had said, like, okay, my guy does not have time for romance. So, like, I wanted to get to know the crew because I wanted to, like, you know, learn more about the characters. But then I just randomly found out at the end of the game, I was like, oh, I, I was in a relationship with Liara? Because the game is, it, like, doesn't really telegraph it to you in any way. It just goes, hey, now you're in a relationship. Yeah, that's the biggest failing of Mass Effect 1 as far as the romance. It's hard to really tell. A lot of times you pick an option not knowing exactly what's going to be said, and that's intentional by the designers of Mass Effect. Your wheel options are just like a summary, like the gist of what you're going to say. But when you choose it, it might actually come out more or less severe than what you intended based on the short choice, such that the real barometer that you have to go on is, is this choice up at the top of the wheel or at the bottom? And so... Right. You know, a choice that seems perfectly innocuous on the wheel, but it's at the top, could potentially initiate a romance. And a choice that doesn't seem like it's, uh, you know, that severe on the bottom might be worse than what it actually is. And so maybe it was I was playing against myself by sticking mostly to the top and bottom choices. If you were to stick to the middle choice, uh, Evan, you probably might have gotten the actual result that you wanted. But what's the fun right. in picking the middle choice? It's usually the boringest. <laughs> um, all right, so moving, we've no, done no, a lot well, of talking well, about it. What makes you want to yeah, say yeah, something? I cut thing. him off. Oh, yeah. I, because I thought Sorry. I was going to be an awesome space pimp, I started wheeling both Ashley and Liara at the same time. <laughs> yeah, like you guys said, I had no idea I was in a relationship with them. I just wanted to get the sexy times on because I wanted an achievement. So it, it, at some point, if you're wheeling them both, they approach you simultaneously and say, yo, what's up? You're playing us both. We're all in relationship. You need to pick one. So you can either tell them both to go to hell or you can pick one over the other and they just shatter the other one's heart. And it's a beautiful thing to shatter <laughs> Ashley Williams' heart. I, I, actually, I actually went with Ashley. I know everyone uh, hates Ashley's her awesome. because they say, like, oh, she's a space racist. Oh, I actually but, like know, her. I that's why she's that. awesome. I think that's a great character trait. Yeah. That could play into stuff really substantially in the future. Right. I, I thought that, you know, that was actually kind of cool. And I thought that actually due to the um, choices I made, I had her be less of a space racist. But here's what sort of breaks the character uh, of all the characters in Mass Effect 1 before we move on. There are incidental dialogue options if you've got certain people in your party. Yeah, because even though you've got uh, multiple NPCs to pick, you can only take two of them at a time with you out on missions. And when you get into dialogues with other NPCs, every so often, depending on who you've got, they'll chip in with a comment or two. However, uh, these comments aren't character-specific. They are dependent on which one you picked is your first party member slot and which one is in your second party member slot, such that there's a point in Mass Effect 1 where you meet a politician. 
and he's like a hardline earth conservative for like the terra firma party that's very you know humans only kick the aliens out build the fence on the south border or whatever and because of where i had ashley i picked her second instead of first she chimes in with hey maybe you guys shouldn't hate aliens so much <laughs> it's like what <laughs> wait is, is this the same game? It's like how it's not an accident because they had to have they the voice to actor record, record yeah. the line. It makes no sense at all. You know, it, it's like okay. I mean, that's what made me think like okay, my dialogue options by picking more Paragon choices with her caused her to like slightly reevaluate her uh, perception of other aliens. Um, and this happens with Garrus as well, who's another party member you get, uh, Turian, who uh, is sick and tired of being like you know held down by the rules. Such that you could get a, either convince him to be more along that line or th tell him to, like, you know what, the rules are okay. So I thought this was just another thing. But no, it's just Bioware being screwy. And I, th I feel like that was a little better in the second game, but maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, it was, it was an improvement in the second game because it was character-dependent as opposed to you pick this person first, right. you pick this person second. Um, all right, so uh, we should talk about some of the actual, like, uh, you know, combat and inventory stuff in Mass Effect. Oh, we can blaze through this. The inventory sucked. The combat was kind of annoying because it was right. all based on <laughs> die rolls instead of actual contact. And especially on console, the, the inventory is just brutal. And this oh, wasn't yeah. something that bothered me at the time I played it because I had never been excited for anything in my life like I had been excited for Mass Effect. <laughs> so when I got it and played it, I just... Pl I played that game for like 60 hours over three days or some crazy shit. Uh, and I, no, nothing bothered me. I thought that game was perfect. You know, three years later, in hindsight, it's like, well, maybe not. Maybe the inventory is the worst thing in the world. Because it, it was pretty unmanageable. Yeah, it was unmanageable. Everything was jumbled up together. Uh, you could only view a few items at a time. There was very little easy way to tell whether something was better than another item or not. At the end of the day, the only gear that really mattered was your Spectre gear, and everything else was just, like, whatever. And um, regardless of whether or not characters could use or equip certain weapons, uh, they'd still be able to equip them. And so it was really frustrating to deal with their inventory system. I put it on the PC so it was less awful. But yeah, inventory in Mass Effect 1 was a huge nightmare, and you'd spend forever trying to weed through, like, okay, I don't need this. Do I need this or not? Let me go through each and every single person. And then breaking all of their shit down into Omnigel one by one. Yeah, Daryl, you were playing on uh, on PC, so maybe you uh, didn't really experience the problem on consoles, which is you're, you're doing all that tedious stuff, but the real problem is not choosing what to get rid of. The it's problem is every time you reduce one of your one of your like uh, upgrades to Omnigel, you have to scroll all the way down very slowly through your entire list and reduce it to Omnigel, and it resets you to the top. And then you scroll all the way back down and turn it into Omnigel. And you can only hold like 150 items, so it goes like, oh, you have 135. You should get rid of them. So I'm like in the middle of a boss fight, and I'm like, all right, now I just gotta like, you know, go through here and get rid of. 20 or 30 items while I'm in the middle of a, you know, a crucial part of the game and it just breaks the flow of the game completely. Yeah, the combat was also in Mass Effect um, the original one uh, kind of so-so. Uh, they had this sort of half-assed yeah. cover system because I guess that's how all games must now be either a first-person shooter or a cover-based third-person shooter. Except, like Mitchie D just said, 
it was much more of a Fallout 3 style of thing in that, you know, if you took a mm. shot and aimed it, it was more based on how many skills you'd put into a pistol or whatever than do you have the shot lined up correctly. And, and it could be potentially annoying because of that. As I played Infiltrator because I was like, ooh, yeah, sniper yeah, totally rifle. Infiltrator's good stuff. Business. Yeah. And so the second I equip the sniper rifle, as soon as I get it, and I zoom in, and it's like, oh, my God, it's Deus Ex 1 all over again. The, the sniper rifle drifts so much because it's like it yeah. wobbles. Your hands are trembling. Oh, it's like you Shepard is just completely shit-faced. He can't keep it steady to save his life. And, and it doesn't make <laughs> sense in, necessarily because it builds you up as, like, even at the start of the game, even when you're level 1, you're supposed to be, like, you know, the best soldier humanity has to offer. And so you're going to be a candidate for what's known as specters, um, a sort of rogue secret branch of the council that, you know, goes out and does whatever they want. And they answer to nobody except the council. So you have freedom to resolve problems as, it, as you will. And uh, there have never been a human specter before. So it's like, OK, Shepard's supposed to be like this top level soldier, but he can't hold a friggin gun. And it was just really irritating. I mean, eventually, you know, you put in a ton of points in a sniper rifle and then you add a couple of like upgrades to your gun that let you stabilize it, and then now you can use the gun well, as intended. You you have a power that like lets you called marksman that lets you use the sniper rifle the way it should be used, where it's stable. But it's ridiculous to me that you have to use a power to be able to just stably hold a sniper rifle. Right. I mean, there are different sets of powers in this game. We mentioned biotics, which are basically magic. There's also a thing called tech, which are some skills. But in gameplay... And they're, they they're all on the same wheel, yeah. Yeah. In, in, in gameplay, basically, the difference between powers is they all cause an explosion of some sort. Yeah, I could never I mean, keep them separate. Yeah. Like, I still can't fully wrap my head around what the difference between biotic and tech powers are. Yeah, other than certain classes can use this set of yeah, exactly. special traits, and other classes can use that set of special traits. And they're augmented by different inventory items that's even more crap for you to keep track of. So, I mean... And, and there's, there's a lot of stuff to keep track of in Mass Effect 1 during combat, You're, because all those powers, when you use them, you have to wait for them to recharge, and they all recharge separately. So you've got to wait for like all of these things to come back, and you have to keep watching in the console version that wheel with the powers and be like, when is this thing going to be ready? And meanwhile, you're paying attention to health, which you then, you know, you have to use Metagel to regenerate people's health. But then that has a recharge time, too. So it, there's like a, the, there's a lot going on in combat. And it, it's uh, I don't think it's in a good way. I think it just got a little too convoluted. Right. For me I sometimes. mean, eventually you get armor or upgrades that let you at least slowly regenerate health as well. So mm -hmm. you don't have to use which the is the only upgrade to use on like on your armor if you have to pick one. That's always the best one. Right. I mean, health regeneration, because um, in this game, similar to Halo, you know, you've got shields and then you've got health. And once your shields are gone, your health will drop pretty fast. Uh, so whenever you lose shields, they're very kind and they say, I've lost shields. <laughs> kind of silly voice. But yeah, there's little reason to put anything into your armor other than more shields or more regeneration for shields or health. Except that right. doesn't stop them from giving you, like, 75 different kinds of armor. And at the end of the day, you only really <laughs> want one. Right. So, yeah, a lot of unnecessary complication in uh, the original Mass Effect. That's it for part A of Anigamers podcast number 33. Keep an eye on podcast.anigamers.com in the next few weeks for the second half of the episode.